seated. Thank you. My brothers in Christ, good evening. It's a great joy to be with you as we begin this mission event titled Called. I want to thank Father John as well as Father Robert and Darius, um, Ali and Colleen, the pastoral team here, as well as all the prisoners that have been very welcoming this weekend and allowed me the opportunity to share with you this mission. We titled it Called because a lot of times when we think of vocations or callings, because the word vocation comes from the Latin word vocate, literally meaning to call, and God calls all of us. We think of particular vocations such as priesthood, religious life, single, consecrated life, or married life, and those are important. But I think we forget that our first call through our baptism is a universal call to holiness, that all of us are called to be holy. As I asked this weekend at all the homilies, I asked, how many of you want to go to heaven? You all put your hands up. And I asked, how many of you want to be a saint? There's kind of a little bit of a hesitation. Because I think we think of saints as some phenomenal figures, amazing figures, awesome figures, but we forget that sainthood is as ordinary as breathing. When I was putting together the mission, I was reflecting on how can I present in a way that's scriptural, but also practical, on how to grow in holiness, and also more importantly, how to be aware of God's plan for our lives, in the good times, the bad, and the difficult, and the joyous. And I couldn't think of three better figures in the Old Testament than Abraham, David, and Esther. So this evening, we begin our journey with Abraham and see how his call from God was not only a unique one, but a difficult one as well. We'll discover how Abraham had to grow in not only understanding, but trusting in God's call, and how we too, even those of us in our twilight years, are still called by God to faithfulness and holiness. Our story begins with the end of the scattering of the Tower of Babel. And God surprisingly doesn't try to pick up the pieces one by one but he rather calls one man, Abram, whose name will later change to Abraham. And Abraham is from the line of Shem. And God's call for Abram is a radical one because at the young age of 75, because that's very young, right? Abram and his barren wife, Sarah, meaning she was not able to have children, who God will later rename as Sarah, are to leave their relatives and their homeland of Mesopotamia, which is in modern-day Iraq, and journey to a new land that God had not yet made known to them. God's call, however, includes a wonderful promise that outlines the masterpiece that is God's plan for salvation. And here's the call. It comes from the book of Genesis, chapter 12, verse 1 to 3. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house, to the land I will show you, and I will make you a great nation. I will bless you 
and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who curses you, I will curse. And by your families of the earth, all shall bless themselves. Wow. Now put yourself in Abram's shoes for a moment. You're 75 years old. You have no children. Your wife is barren, meaning the likelihood of having a child, an heir to make a great nation, will not really happen. In essence, God is calling Abram to become a dynasty who will have a land of his own and it will be a channel of blessing for all the nations. All at the age of 75. So, did Abram go into the deep end of the call with both feet in? Did he just jump right in? Well, yes and no. Abram did obey God in leaving his homeland. But he didn't leave everything as the Lord requested. Abram was told to leave his kindred and relatives. However, as we continue to read the story, we see that Lot went with him. Now, Lot is Abram's nephew, the son of his brother Haran. The fact that Abram took Lot along with him is reiterated in the passage twice in quick succession. This repetition shows that Abram did not fully heed God's demand. In case we forgot that Lot is Abram's kinsman, it's repeated three other times, which in scripture is basically telling us, pay attention. This is an important detail. So why did Abram bring Lot with him? God told him to leave his kindred, leave his relatives, go to the promised land, and I'll make you a great nation. Well, it's very simple. Abram had no son, therefore he had no heir. And Sarai was barren, she had no children. And Abram rashly puts two and two together. He was truly a practical man. He thought, what good is it to have land and riches if there's no heir to enjoy it? So Abram brings Lot with him as a kind of insurance policy. He's like the farmer's insurance or, or state farm insurance. Kind of a backup plan. How many times have we been called by God and set up our own insurance policy? not following his will or call to the letter. I know it's happened to me numerous times. And each time I try to get things done in my own way, in my own plan, often it leads me to disappointment and distress. Because I try to initiate my own plan and it backfires. We'll see later how in the story Abram still tries to bring the plan to fulfillment, but not through trusting God. So, 
we have Lot, who's a tag-along heir. And the surrogate son of sorts brings a host of problems. Right away, when Abram comes upon the land, there is a famine. Now, whenever there's a famine in Scripture, God is essentially showing the consequences of disobedience. As Abram has held back from fulfilling the call, so now God holds back too. He holds back the rain from the land he has given to Abram. Abram's lack of faith in his fertility is matched by God's restraint in the land's fertility. The lesson is as stark as the barren land. We reap what we sow. Or better yet, we do not reap where we do not sow in faith. So due to the famine, Abram quickly abandons the promised land and heads to Egypt. And again, in his stubbornness, Abram tries to work everything out on his own, trusting his own wits and wisdom without even offering a prayer to God. We can get in the same boat as Abram does, where we don't rely on God for guidance or discernment, where God's call falls on deaf ears. What happens to Abram happens to us also when we don't trust God's promise for us. And all of us, even if we have discovered our particular vocation, are still called to discern the will of God each and every day. That's why praying the Our Father is such an important part of our daily prayer life. It reminds us that we have to ask daily for God's will to be done in our lives. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. But back to our story. Abram's courage is soon tested. When they arrive in Egypt, the Pharaoh is enchanted by Sarah's beauty. And Abram pretends to be her brother, lest the Egyptians kill him to have her. Abram's like, you know what? That's my sister, like, go right ahead. Motivated by fear, and again, lacking in trust in God, Abram goes as far to give his very wife, Sarai, as a bride to Pharaoh, risking his own wife to save his own neck. Now, none of the men here would do that, right? You guys would be all good, right? I hope so. But in all seriousness, Abram is very far from God and his promise. And this distance is identified by a lack of any encounter between God and Abram the whole time he is in Egypt. Yet, God is faithful to his promise, his call for Abraham, as we hear in Scripture. We can be unfaithful, but God can be nothing but faithful. God can never deny himself. He is nothing but faithful to us, even if we're unfaithful to his plan at first. So, what happens? How is God faithful to Abram? Well, God steps in and intervenes, and through a series of plagues, moves Pharaoh to release Sarah and restore her to Abram. 
The Egyptians seek to be freed from the plagues God brings, to obey God, and they enrich the disobedient Abram. Abram and his wife, Sarai, leave Egypt and head to the promised land once again. However, there's a growing problem. Lot and Abram have such a large herd and servants from their time in Egypt, and the land is just too small for both of them. And so they separate. And what's interesting is as soon as Abram lets Lot go, God appears to Abraham and promises to give him the land and countless descendants. Abram rediscovers his call. When Lot is offered the choice of land, Lot chooses the richest, the land for himself, the land of Sodom and Gomorrah. And no sooner does Lot arrive in the land that a war breaks out in the cities, are overrun, and Lot is captured. Abram, hearing of Lot's fate, raises a small army, and against all odds, wins a decisive victory, freeing Lot. Upon Abram's return from battle, the king of Salem, Melchizedek, brings out bread and wine, gives thanks to God for delivering Abram, and blesses Abram Most High. Ironically, the name Melchizedek means, my God is righteous. It's a reminder for Abram to turn back to the righteousness of God's plan for his life. Now that Abram has separated himself from Lot and worshipped God through the ministry of the priest king Melchizedek, it seems like a good time to receive the full blessing of the land, which includes the dynasty and his descendants. We come to that familiar passage when God promises Abram that his reward is great. So let's go through the passage. It's on Genesis chapter 15, verse 1 to 6. And after these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord God, what wilt thou give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, thou hast given me no offspring, and a slave born in my house will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, This man shall not be your heir. Your own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look toward heaven and number the stars, if you are able to number them. Then he said to him, So shall your descendants be. And he believed the Lord, and he reckoned it to him as righteousness. God's response to Abram's frustration is, let's take the conversation outside. Let's, let's cool off. Let's, let's discuss this. Let's take it outside. And he invites Abram to look up to the heavens. 
to look up and count the number of the stars. Now, our first thought of this scene is, well, it's obviously nighttime, right? There's stars. But if we read the passage carefully, the story says the sun is high overhead, and it doesn't go down for another seven verses. God's command is given in broad daylight. So, imagine it's 12 o'clock, the Lord speaks to you, it's the afternoon, like today was a beautiful day, you look up and you're like, count the number of the stars. Um, The sun, one, that's it. So Abram is staring at a blue midday sky. And he couldn't see the stars anymore. Then he could believe or see his countless descendants. God's message is profound. And it's a message for us as well. Your sight is too weak to see the stars. I, the Lord, can see them. And I, the Lord, can see my plan for you, even though you can't see it. In the Catechism of the Catholic Church, the first line describes that God has a plan of sheer goodness for us. And like Abram, God's plan for us, God has a call for us, but we often don't see the whole plan. Like Abram, we have to ask ourselves, what is the next step of faith we have to take? What is God revealing through my relationships? What I'm reading or listening to? The nature outside? My experience in the family of parishes? To the silence in my heart? Where is God in the presence of the messiness of my life? We have to take the next step of faith in order to have the plan move forward. Then Abram has the smartest question, I believe, in the whole story. He essentially asks God, all right, prove it. Put your money where your mouth is, Lord. He says, oh Lord, how am I to know that I shall possess it? And the it being the land, but more importantly, How will I know I will have a dynasty and worldwide blessing flowing from my lineage? God tells Abraham then, go fetch a heifer, a she-goat, a ram, a turtle dove, and a pigeon. Sounds pretty strange to our ears, eh? If the Lord told you, like, Lord, where is my plan? You know what? Go grab these things and we'll talk. You'd be like, what are you saying, Lord? What's going on? But Abram's time, he knew exactly what God was doing. He was making good on his promise by making a solemn act called a covenant. When a promise needed to have some weight to it, it was done by elevating the promise to the level of a covenant oath. When the animals were sacrificed, they were separated and both parties would walk between the two halves of the sacrificed animals. The person entering the covenant is essentially saying, may I end up like these animals, dead and cut in two, 
if I'm not faithful to my promise and oath. Some serious weight to the promise God gave to Abram. God is always faithful to his promises. But is Abram? If we fast forward a bit, a number of years, time has passed after God telling Abram the promise to not be afraid that he'll have descendants as many as the stars. And it seems God's call is just a memory rather than something coming to light in Abram's life. Even though God made a covenant with Abram, Abram is still without an heir. His wife, Sarai, has a brilliant plan to speed up the promise. She is barren, but her maid, Hagar, can conceive. Problem solved, right? Sarah found the source of the philosophy that God helps those who help themselves. But that's not how God's call or plan works for our lives. Even though at times we can trap ourselves in this similar temptation, we often, when we come to an impasse, we decide to take charge, to take control, to grab life by the horns, to make our call to go at it on our own. But again, we end up back where we started, lacking in trust of God, and we come to a place that leads to frustration and disappointment. We will never achieve that plan of life that we want without God. God is necessary. Soon Hagar becomes pregnant with Abram's child, Ishmael, and it leads to all kinds of conflict again, eventually leading to Abram to kick Hagar and young Ishmael out of the camp. Once again, if we try to do things on our own, we often end up in conflicts and misgivings. God is silent once again. Abram has had no encounter with God since breaking the promise of God provided for him, rather than Abram resolving the challenge himself. And after 13 long years, God speaks and calls once again to the covenant oath that he will have a multitude of descendants. And to make sure Abram hears him loud and clear, we see God change his name here from Abram to Abraham. The interesting note of the Hebrew is that the name Abram literally means exalted father, which is ironic because Abram, besides Ishmael, has no children. The name Abraham means father of many nations. God is making clear that this is going to happen. Abram just has to wait to be patient. Sarai also receives a new name from Sarai to Sarah, meaning the mother of nations or kings. Shortly after renewing the covenant, Abram is greeted by three visitors and shows them remarkable hospitality. During the meal, they tell Abram that when they return this time next year, 
His wife, Sarah, will have given birth to a son. And just as Abram has laughed at the wild idea over his years, Sarah laughs at that idea that she would give birth. Is anything too hard for the Lord? This will be a profound lesson not only for Abraham, but Sarah as well. Sarah does indeed give birth to a son, and his name is Isaac, which literally means laughter. Ha, ha, ha. God has the last laugh. They say if you want to make God laugh, tell him your call or plan for my life isn't going to happen. I'll do things on my own, thanks. God's going to laugh. Isaac grows up, and he's the apple of his father's eye. But God is going to challenge Abraham to one final test. Let's listen to the story together. This is in Genesis chapter 22, verse 2 to 12. He said, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering upon one of the mountains of which I tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his ass, and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac, and he cut the wood for the burnt offering, and arose and went to the place which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham lifted his eyes and saw the place afar. When Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the ass, I and the lad will go yonder and worship, and come again to you. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac his son. And he took the hand and he took in his hand the fire and the knife. So they went both of them together. And Isaac said to his father Abraham, My father, and he said, Here I am, my son. He said, Behold the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went, both of them, together. When they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built an altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac his son and laid him on the altar upon the wood. Then Abraham put forth his hand and took the knife to slay his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, Here am I. He said, Do not lay your hand on the lad or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, and seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. This passage should be very familiar. It actually was the first reading from this morning's uh, Mass. So, and it was, not an, it was not on purpose that we put this together. So God's providence is amazing. But there's a lot to unpack in that passage. The Lord is testing the faith of Abraham. 
testing his call in the most profound way. Give to me what is most precious of yours. And the command cuts right to the heart, demanding the sacrifice, but not simply Abraham's son, but the son whom you love. The anguish of the command is driven home by the repetition again, son, son, son. Abraham responds in obedience, but deep down, I think profoundly as Abraham was tried and tested, he knew that faith would win that day. He knew deep down that the Lord, if he so chooses, can have his soon-to-be-dead son rise again. This is the faith that made Abraham the father of Israel and the father of faith. It's a bit like my story. As shared in the introduction, I was born and raised in Mississauga to my parents, Gil, and my mom, Teresa. My dad, Gil, is from the mainland of Portugal continent, uh, the continent. He lived close to Fatima. My mom was born in the Azores, in uh, the island of San Miguel, um, and eventually both of them moved to Canada. They fell in love, they got married, and then the three of us came out. First Kelly, then myself, and then my younger brother, Anthony. And we were pretty much a church-going family. We didn't pray the rosary, we didn't pray very often, but we went to church every Sunday. And of course, my parents being Portuguese, we went to church every Sunday in Portuguese. So as growing up, I started to get bored at Mass, and I started to find ways to kind of entertain myself. One of the ways is I used to run around the church, try to get up in front of the church, see how fast I can run around before my parents caught me. I would bother my brother and sister, like during consecration, I would kick my brother sometimes or pull my sister's hair. My mother would give me the eyes. You know the eyes? Wait till I get you home. Yeah, yeah, so. And uh, that was basically our life. I mean, we didn't alter serve. My parents weren't Eucharistic ministers or lectors. It was just, we just came to church. That's all we did. Then one day, I received my first Holy Communion and I got a little prayer book, a very small prayer book. And in the prayer book, there were the parts of the Mass. And all of a sudden, I decided to take that prayer book, open it up, get some bread from my parents' countertop, some grape juice from the fridge, and I celebrated Mass on my parents' coffee table at, the, at eight years old. My brother wanted to receive communion twice, said not in my church. But I also wanted to be an astronaut, Prime Minister of Canada, President of the United States, King of England, you know, all those wonderful things. But I always thought that the priesthood was interesting. We had a wonderful priest in my home parish in Mississauga, uh, Father Monsignor Resendis. Very holy man, very pious, but he could crack jokes like the best of them. He, I always saw him speaking to the prisoners afterwards and having a great time with them. And I really was inspired by him, his holiness, but also his humility and his humanity. And that was my life until the age of 13. I received my confirmation and something happened. I left the church. It's like this terrible joke I once heard. An old priest and a young priest were having a conversation. And the young priest was lamenting to the old priest, I have bats in my bell tower and I just don't know how to get rid of them. The old priest says, it's very simple, my son. Bring them into the church. 
baptize them, give them first Holy Communion, confirm them, you won't see them until they need to get married. <laughs> terrible, terrible, but that was my life. I was confirmed, I graduated from the Catholic faith, and I was ready to move on and do my own thing. I went to high school, and ironically, I was still involved in my faith, even though I wasn't going to church. I was part of the chaplaincy or campus ministry team, and I would help to organize liturgies and masses. I would be involved in retreats. I would help out with social justice projects. But the church thing, the mass thing, was, it was just not for me. It was just not for me. All of a sudden, I finally knew what my plan was. I knew exactly what my plan was. I knew 100%. I was going to be a crown attorney, which is a lawyer that works for the government. And I thought, this is exactly what I want to do. And this is what I want to do for a living, because I really enjoy law. So I went to the University of Toronto with that in mind. And I started a course in philosophy, a minor in religious studies, because I kind of enjoyed religion, and political science, because law and politics go hand in hand. And one day, I got a call. But it wasn't a call from God, but it might as well have been. But it wasn't a call from God. It was a call from my old high school campus minister. Her name was Miss DeVideo. And she invited me to go back to Mass in my old high school on Friday morning. And I thought, well, I don't want to disappoint her. And I have no excuse not to go. So, all right, I'll go to Mass on Friday. When I arrived, Besides Mr. Video, there was another priest, his name, his name was Father Min, and students from my old high school that would gather in the morning to celebrate Mass. And of course, being the oldest, all of a sudden the father would come to me and say, hey, do you mind doing the reading today? Do you mind setting up the altar for me? And I'm like, yeah, I could do that, that's fine, no problem. So I would read the readings of the day, I would set up altar, uh, the altar for Father, then one day he came to me and he had in his hand a pamphlet and he looked at me square in the eyes and he said, Danny, there's a come and see weekend retreat at St. Augustine Seminary. It's a weekend for thinking about the priest because the seminary is where they train priests. I think you might have the vocation to be a priest. And in my mind, I'm like, nope, 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 nope. This guy's barking up the wrong tree. No way, not me. Priests can't get married. Priests don't make a lot of money. Priests tend to have nice cars. And priests aren't happy, right? We're never happy, right? But again, I didn't want to disappoint Miss DeVideo, and I didn't want to disappoint Father. So yeah, okay, I'll go, I'll go. That night, I hadn't prayed in a long time. Like, my prayer life was essentially, if I want to pass a test, say a Hail Mary. That was my prayer life for the longest time in high school. My mom always told me, you know, you, your, Our Lady will always take care of you. So if, you, if you're struggling in a test, just say a Hail Mary, she'll give you the answers. I'm like, okay, I like that. But I prayed to God, and I had a conversation. But it was more of a one-sided conversation. I said, Lord, I'm going to go to this retreat. I'm going to eat a lot of free food. I might meet some cool guys, but this whole priesthood thing's not for me. You got it? Silence. So it's okay. God understands me, and I understand God. You leave me alone, and I'll leave you alone. It's cool. 
So I went to the seminary, and when I arrived, my first thought was, okay, where am I, what, 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 did I, what did I sign up for? Like, as soon as I walked through the doors, I'm like, what are you doing? Like, why are you here? But when I got in, I realized the men in the seminary were just normal guys. They were joking around. They were, I think they were talking about, like, pranking each other at one point and all that. And I realized, okay, the seminary is not in my mind. My mind was the seminary was like a place where the guys are all pious and religious and holy and chanting. And I realized these guys are far from that. They, they were like me in all ways. The only thing is they had thought about what God's call is for their life. And they were really taking it seriously. So the Friday night, I experienced uh, the retreat and I really enjoyed it. And I thought, you know, it's, it's not for me. It's not for me. Saturday morning, heard of some lectures. Oh, yeah, that's kind of interesting. It's interesting, but mm, it's not for me. And then Saturday night, for the first time in my life, I experienced adoration. And adoration, for those who don't know, is when the body of Christ, the same body of Christ that's in the tabernacle, the same body of Christ we receive at Mass, is placed in a device called a monstrance, which comes from the Latin word to demonstrate or to show. And it's showing us Jesus. It's showing the most sacred heart of our Lord. And I was in that chapel in silence for one hour, thinking, what a waste of an hour. That's how I thought at first. But something changed. But you have to come back tomorrow to find out. So tomorrow we conclude that story and move on. I'm very smart with that. Someone taught me that. Don't give the whole story away. Give it in parts. <laughs> but my brothers and Christ, I hope you saw tonight how our lives can reflect Abraham's. Sometimes we don't see God's plan for our life fully. Sometimes we only see pieces of it. But we have to have faith and trust in him. He has a plan of sheer goodness for us. Let's continue to pray. Let's continue to grow. Let's continue to support one another in our vocations and our callings. And let's trust that the Lord has our back. So we'll conclude by singing our closing hymn. Which is found in your Blue Glory and Praise book, number 92, I Have Loved You. Number nine, two, in your blue glory and praise.